I'm always very happy to see so many familiar faces, people I've met for a number of years, and just considering we're all practicing Dhamma together, okay? It's a place where we're all interested in something that is very, we discovered, is very valuable. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do my little chant before I start. It's a little, a um, few, three sentences, just to make sure that uh, I keep on track with <laughs> with myself. Namo tassa bhagavatu arahatu samma sambutassa Namo tassa bhagavatu arahatu samma sambutassa Namo tassa bhagavatu arahatu samma sambutassa Pudhang dhammang sangham namasami And see, we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha before we start. Our three refuge, three refuges. Have you heard of refuges before? Okay. So the title of this talk is a. Uh, it's really my fault. It's one of the titles I put on, on the blank sheets. I told you some of you have heard me tell you that we are invited to give a, a title for this Sunday talk and uh, I usually unfortunately put them with a kid. I know we're, we're kind of quite humorous lot here so we, we like to, you know, I did it in jest, you know, things I remember, you know, myself, other people telling me, you know, it's kind of a little amalgam of themes that have created a bit of problem for people, you know, like discipline, wisdom, what about compassion? You know, it's like Theravada sometimes is accused of being a very stern, dry, selfish, with little compassion sort of appearing in the, as part of the teaching. And um, it's a fascinating topic, really, for me, because I've always been interested in just... Uh, Studying just not just through the practice itself, but also the concept, how concept have such an influence on us, the way we interpret the words and how these words are also echoing uh, through our own experience of these concepts, you know, how, what, how they resonate in us. Compassion. Compassion is another word for love, you know. So it's not compassion, love. And the Buddha actually added two aspects of, uh, two new words for us Westerners in our Western kind of philosophical um, domain and, uh, you know, the way we interpret love. Uh, the Buddha gave us two more aspects which are rarely talked about in our uh, society. And, you know, they mention, but in a different context. So this is, these two words are mentioned in a context of compassion, right? An aspect of compassion. And one of them is mudita, which means it's usually considered to be the uh, opposite of jealousy and envy. So it's a love one's heart feel when you feel, when you witness somebody being very happy to have received something that you didn't get yourself, something that could easily bring a sense, of, naturally, if we don't train the mind, you may feel jealousy. Now, jealousy, maybe if you're still very identified with the idea that you are in charge of your mind, then maybe you think, oh, I, don't, I mustn't be jealous, and jealousy is a terrible mind state. Now, once you practice a bit longer, you realize it's just these words, these states of mind, this concept refers to just mental qualities that rise up in consciousness. Okay? So the untrained mind maybe will feel jealous. And then, of course, what do we do? Are we compassionate with ourselves when we feel jealous and decided to be a good Buddhist? 
yes? So that's where compassion is really important to talk about, but in a larger context, maybe, you know, than just empathizing with people, just being kind to people. But I think we're quite good as human beings, generally, unless we're all nasty, born, you know, kind of, you know, with a nasty mind, which I don't think we are. But mostly, most people can really uh, touch by compassion and love, you know and helping others and being kind to each other and so on. So as an idea, we, we, we accept this idea quite easily to be generous and kind to each other. To put this in practice is another matter because we don't always know how to recognize certain aspects of our life and interpret them in the wrong way. So the... <clears throat> You know, the second aspect of love, which we don't uh, have access to as a knowledge of love, is equanimity. Now, equanimity, you know, used to be, how was it? Yeah, it used to be, uh, you know, considered a terrible translation of love. But equanimity is actually upeka in Pali, which literally translates as equanimity. And upeka is also linked with peace. It's not just being uh, uncaring about somebody or uh, being uh, ignorant of what's happening in somebody's life or heart or their difficulties. It's more like the kind of love you feel at some point when, let's say, someone who is very close to you, very dear to you, is suffering from a terrible illness or a terrible addiction, like I've seen in my life as a nun, as a mother, you know, having children who are terribly addicted and, you know, killing themselves almost through this addiction. At some point, they tried everything. They felt guilty, so much guilt for not doing enough, or not really caring enough, or it's their fault, it's their problem, you know, it's guilty, and so on. And at some point you realize, you know, all you can do for someone is to also, in the end, once you realize you can do it, you've done everything, you can just realize that we all, we are all, as the Buddha reminds us, the heir of our karma. And karma means action, means doing. And in the context of the Buddhist teaching, it's also the, uh, another word for expressing cause and effect. You know, you, you, there is a cause and the result is this way or that way. So you realize that people maybe have been, uh, you know, something happened in their life that disables them to actually want to be alive and well. They can't do it. Do you understand? They don't have the energy to do it. I've seen parents being totally, you know, horribly distressed, you know, with their children or their relatives, you know, with, or there could be another another thing like cancer or something like a disease that paralyzes the mind and the body. You have parents, for example, become, you know, sort of in the, sort of in the throw of Alzheimer, can't remember anything anymore, you know. So it's very, um, you know, you, you can only love them the way they are. Do you understand? So when it comes to something like Alzheimer or, um, you know, or you have like a Parkinson's disease or something like this, and you see you can't do anything, you can't do much, but you can love them. You can love them. I still remember when my father was in his 90s, had been very, very clear in his mind until, you know, cl close to 90. And then one of the things I noticed, I mentioned this to you because it might be really handy when it happens to somebody close to you, for example, is what the, the teaching I got was extraordinary. When I saw my father was very bright mind, very intelligent, very cultured, you know, and so on, very, um, you know, knowledgeable, suddenly he, he, he lost it, you know, at some point. And then I thought I loved my dad, you know, very, very much. But actually, I began to accept him as he was, without that brilliancy that I really you know, we're loved. And then we just had fun together, you know, we just told each other story. We played, we played around with, with his mind, you know. It was interesting. He couldn't take care of himself in the way he used to. So, you know, you really love, when you love somebody truly, 
um, you come to the place, place where it's no more kind of an attachment that people feel they need to have to love someone. It's no more a desire for them to be well forever again, you know, and so on. It's just you, you accept them as they are, and you love them totally, just as they are. And it's difficult. It's not easy. Because then you realize, personally for me, I realize the amount of expectation I had in regard to my dad. But it didn't disappoint me. That's what a difference. I didn't feel disappointed. I didn't feel it should be different. What a relief, isn't it? We just had a playful relationship, that's all. We always had a bit, anyway. But it was just a sense of uh, loving him just as he is. So these two words, you know, uh, sympathetic joy, you know, or uh, gladness, and sometimes it's also translated in our chanting book, or uh, the, the last one, equanimity or serenity, peacefulness, you know, it's not often talked about, is it? But just to come back to the um, topic of this um, uh, afternoon, um, you know, many of us are quite wise in many ways. We know, you know, you wouldn't be here if you hadn't really seen already that there, there needs some work to do, that they need, you need, there's a need for something to know better, maybe to clarify oneself, you know, to, to live a life that really brings happiness. And so I think we have enough intelligence, all of us, you know, and enough maybe education and enough experience to know what to do. And what we don't know what to do often is we don't know how to look after ourselves. We can have a job, we can have children, we can have parents, and so we know how maybe to look after them and so on. But we have very little knowledge about how to take care of this person here. And that's what the Buddha really pointed out. Because he knew that your whole life, it just comes out directly from your own mind. From the mind of your life, you could say. You know, you, you are creating your world all the time. You are creating the situation you live in all the time. Once you know that, it's not that you're going to get, you know, happy instantly. It's just maybe you begin to see, you begin to see oh, there's something I can do. So there's a freedom in that. You're not just left and abandoned with a sense of hopelessness and a sense of it will never work. You have to learn some tools on how to live with this mind, with this body, with yourself. With yourself is not too easy, but also the response that other people give to, your, to yourself. You know, how people respond to you, how you affect your life, how you affect other people. Because yourself and other people, after a while, especially if you live with them, you're pretty connected, aren't you? Right? You can't discard the fact that you're just an individual being living on its own, on its own planet. So we live in a very interconnected world, and, you know, we're very, we have very little separation between us, you know. We have a skin on this body, you know, but that separate us, or at least give us the illusion that we're separate, you know. But actually, we affect each other deeply. And the beauty of this realization is that we can actually bring in our heart, in our mind, we can bring into this world something more beautiful than all the states of mind that we hate. <laughs> and we keep recreating again and again the desire to really... Uh, you know, the inability to love oneself and the inability to bear with oneself as one is. So compassion, that aspect of compassion is very important. And, uh, you know, together with the wisdom and discipline, which is really what personally, when I became a nun, or even before, why, you could say, but before I became a nun, I had enough, you know, connection with the word compassion, and I knew what it meant, and I knew, you know, I was surrounded, but I wasn't particularly Christian, but I knew enough of the Christian teaching, and I still always loved people who had a lot of uh, generous and compassionate people, you know, and the, the people we knew, the great beings of our world, 
who were very compassionate and affected the world in a very beautiful way. So that always inspired me. But at some point, when I began, even before I was a nun, I began to, like you probably, began to be more aware of the reality within me. My mind, this mind here, yeah. the reality of the world which was seemed to be uh, driving me most of the time, but I did not know how to handle it. I did not know what to do with it. Intellectually, I could make sense of it quite quickly. You know, intellectually, I could say, well, if you hit, hit somebody on the head, you're going to hurt that person. If you speak nicely to somebody, yes, of course, it's going to be unkind and so on. But what was missing was the strength to actually act on the discipline of not doing that. <laughs> so fortunately for those who live in England, you're already brought up to be kind of kind and polite. But not all culture are like that, you know. Right? At least to be properly, your, your social etiquette will be properly kind of accepted, you know, and to look fairly decent in England, you have to be fairly polite, don't you? I know, I'm French, so it's very different. <laughs> Not that the French are rude, you know, they're also educated and polite, but um, very differently, you know, because the, uh, you know, the, the, the feeling, the world of feeling, the emotional body for a French person, is, there's more freedom in that, you know, to act on it, to feel it, to know it, to use it, and so on. There's more freedom to lose it, to use this emotional body that we have, all of us, right? In England, it's you're pretty kind of difficult, isn't it? Gosh, when I speak to my friends, you know, they're really, uh, it's really hard, even for them, being British, out of public school and so on, you know. Wow. I say, really, bravo to be able to live like this. <laughs> Very restrained already. When the young, when young women used to come from, you know, British women, I said, you sure you want to be a nun, you know? Are you sure you've done everything? You've done everything before you want to be a nun because you don't want them to be more restrained with a British, with a Buddhist discipline, you know, which is already a very restrained path. So you have many to attract, I think, people here who've been unrestrained maybe before and got really tired of their lack of restraint. And the lack of restraint, you could say, is different from, from for different people, right? The restraint from an English person probably different from the restraint from a French person, you know, or a Mediterranean person. It's not like you're being polite or impolite. It's just that you can be more expressive in some cultures than others. You can talk about things that you might not be able to talk if you were not in another culture. So that's what I mean. So um, we talk a lot about discipline. We talk a lot about wisdom, you know. And, but discipline is really what enables you to really come from your intellectual knowledge to the actual acting on it and being it. That is a bridge, you know, that's a, this wisdom. Sometimes in the forest tradition, you know, all our challenges from the point of view of this teacher, for example, Ajansha, he says, this is your practice, this is, your, this is what you work with. If you're angry, you face it. If you don't face it, you'll be more, you suffer more from anger. So the forest master are very sharp like this, you know. They're just like the Buddha, actually. That's what the Buddha used to say, the same. Not so different. And so when you, um, when Buddhism of this tradition is, compared to maybe more the, of some Mahayana teaching, we talk a lot about compassion, like the Dalai Lama, which has a com very compassionate beings, very impressive and so on. You know, you can think, oh, you know, what about Theravada Buddhism? You talk about really working really hard, you know, meditating, keeping the precept really tight and seriously. Uh, there's none of that, you know, oh, do what you want, you know, whatever. Once you're enlightened, you can do what you want. Don't get, you don't need to keep the, you know, sila, you don't get, it's fine. Yeah, we've seen the, the disaster in religious circles of this kind of attitude, haven't we? You know, there's been mega sexual scandals about this, money scandals, all kind of, just like in the world, you know, <laughs> monastery or ashram, and all kind of, can have the same kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, saga. So, um, 
when you think of the life of the Buddha, it's interesting because when you think of the life of the Buddha, how he started after his enlightenment, you know, it's very well-known stories that after his enlightenment, he wondered who he was going to uh, talk to about his realization. Do you want to have a little snooze somewhere? No? No, you're tired, huh? It's all right. She can sleep. It's no problem. No problem. <laughs> and, um, yes, so after his realization, he just... Um, Wondered, who am I going to teach? You know, I think human, mankind is too, um, um, too uh, kind of, um, you know, submerged with a desire of sense desires, you know, to understand what I'm talking about. So he thought about his friend who practiced with him for a few years and abandoned him because from being literally reduced to a skeleton, he started, he realized that that was not the way. This kind of ascetic practice was not, didn't give him any peace, didn't give him any knowledge that he was really looking for. And that's when he remembered when he was a young boy in an orchard of one of his father's uh, palace, uh, just remembering this beautiful, um, you know, uh, sort of setup, being in an idyllic situation and uh, sitting peacefully and being quite focused, you know, and not wanting anything, probably just peaceful. And that's where, from that place, that he started to really get into the passage where he realized the end of suffering, you know, Nibbana, or what it was Nibbana, yeah. But also he got an enormous amount of knowledge through this, you know, which he passed on to mankind, you know, how the mind works, how to deal with the mind, the map of the mind that he left with, with us is extraordinary, extraordinary. And how to work with traveling and journeying through this map is was even more extraordinary. You know, it is even more extraordinary because we can use it today. So um, when he find his disciples, you know, I mean, when they became his disciples, it was his friends, they had abandoned him because they thought he'd completely lost it. You know, he had uh, he lost abandon he abandoned his path because he was given some food to eat. In the end, he accepted to have a uh, a rice milk dish and uh, a, a woman offered him a bowl of rice milk and he accepted it and then that was the end of the face of his friend so he went on his own in the end so um, what happened is that um, you know when he saw this when he saw that the, 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 the fact that people couldn't, would not, never understand he actually looked around with his own omniscient eyes and realized some people, you know, there was a god, God Sahampati, who realized that the Buddha was going to abandon teaching. Apparently, according to the story, he went down from the heaven really quick, as, far as, as fast as you can kind of bend your elbows and open it. That's the kind of speed in the suttas you have often repeated in a sort of form very quickly. He abandoned, he came, went down, came down from the heaven and then prayed to the Buddha, you know, please, uh, Lord, um, please teach for those who have little dust in their eyes. And then he recognized there were little beings in this universe that had little dust in their eyes, right? And so that's when he started teaching the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths, you know, it's an amazing teaching because most of us, one of the things that brings hell into this planet is the fact that we are deluded and ignorant and unable most of the time to know how to get out of this, uh, you know, this situation. And for many people, these truths are so basic. This is a living of our everyday life. We have chant this truth daily or almost daily. You know, when we when we have in our chanting book, you can pick up any chanting book at Amarawati and find the Four Noble Truths explained in there. And the first noble truth, the dukkha, suffering. You know, that's why often also not Buddhism is accused. This tradition accused of not only have not much compassion, right, but also talking about suffering, suffering, and no end to suffering. For some people, they just don't remember that there was an end and a past leading out, leading you out, leading you out of suffering. So the first noble truth is like so simple, you know. Not getting what you want is dukkha. 
big deal. An intellectual, somebody really attached to an intellectual sophistication, <laughs> a sophisticated intellectual work, you know, not getting what you want is dukkha. Getting what you don't want is dukkha. Being separated from the loved one is dukkha. And finally, being identified with mind and body is dukkha. With the five um, khandas is dukkha. You know. So this is a little package that we work in our monastic training and monastic life. This is what we look at suffering from that point of view. We stop looking at suffering, which is okay also to look at the suffering from our psychological aspect, from the trauma we've had in youth, from our education, from our conditioning, from all these kind of stories of our life, you know. When you begin to practice the path of Buddhism, you have learned the story. You maybe you have done even maybe several years of psychotherapy and so on, you know. But maybe it hasn't kind of worked completely the way you expected it to or you wanted. You still suffer. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not like suffering is not a problem if we begin to look at it from the point of view of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is that the first one is actually what I just described, you know, not getting what you want. I mean, how many times during the day you don't get what you want? It's cold, you want to be warm. You're hungry, you don't have the food now. You're getting old, you don't want to get old. You're too young, people don't understand you. You suffer. Too much energy, you drive people crazy around you. You suffer. Not enough energy, you drive people crazy too. You suffer too. You know, so many things make us suffer through the day. So you can see why this dukkha is really uh, totally part and parcel of our daily life. And while we talk about suffering, it's not so much that you're stupid, you know, there's a lot of PhD, you know, that still do not know a thing about how to work with their mind, you know. But it's more, you know, it's more the fact that you haven't yet utilized, used, made use of the actual practice, you know. When you suffer, most of us want to get away from it. When we don't, have, we don't have what we want, yes, we get critical and we feel bored and we want to go somewhere else, want to do something else. When we are sick, we are impatient and we want to take lots of drugs to get really quickly over it. When we are, you know, so, so we don't know how to deal with this suffering, do you understand? That's why we need discipline. The discipline is a learning it's like in any skills, whether you're going to be a doctor, a nurse, you're going to be a dancer or a footballer, you need a discipline, don't you? I mean, look at the, anybody who is on a trade of, you know, have a strong discipline to be able to succeed, don't you? Those who succeed have worked very, very hard, usually. Not to neglect that. You might criticize people, but then with the place where they have been, they have arrived to. Maybe you might not like it, but they themselves have worked very, worked very hard and put a lot of effort and energy and concentration and all that into what they wanted to do. So, not to forget those good qualities. You don't have to be a Buddhist nun to do that. Right? There's many ways to develop this quality of effort, energy, and so on that are so necessary to understand the practice of Buddhism, you know. So, um, yeah. So from this understanding of the First Noble Truth, you begin also to uh, read. There is a cause to it, and the cause to suffering. You can find volumes and volumes, your, all your journal, if, if everybody, anybody is into journaling, journaling their life, you can read the amount of saga, drama, misery, horrors that you've been through and so on, you know. M many people have gone through really difficult lives. Most people who come to Buddhism usually have. And difficult life doesn't mean necessarily you've been in the street, you've been abandoned by your parents or your partner, you have a cancer or deadly disease and so on. It doesn't mean that. It can mean simply that you come to the point where you feel your mind is not a world you want to inhabit anymore. You had enough. You have enough of what it produces. You have enough of what the quality of life that you get from that 
even with three PhD, you know, you probably get even worse because you have to think so much. You know, I mean, usually people doing PhD, they, are, they think a lot, but they're also very bright. Many of them can, you know, don't do this just by chance. So um, the second noble truth, you know, is about the cause. So you look at this suffering and you take the list of things, not getting what you want, what, you know, getting what you don't want, being separated from the loved ones. That can be your headings, you know, your headings. And underneath you have all your personal stories. I can go with that. Lost my mother, didn't get a cake I wanted today. I got redundant, I didn't want that, you know. I, I lost my money, I didn't want that. You know, my partner, you know, did something horrible to me, I didn't want that. My mother tore me off, I didn't want that. All kind of stories like that, you know, that we, the first noble truth is hitting the, you know, life. Can you see it in its little kind of pocket, bag? First noble truth, and then you have the four bags. Not getting what I want, waiting what I don't want. That one, yeah, separate from the loved one. I didn't get my ice cream. I love ice cream, but I didn't get it today. Someone took it in front of me, and I managed not to hate her for three days, you know. So you're making progress, you know. Just notice that. <laughs> you're making progress. This is where we need to have compassion, do you understand? Compassion can be a very hidden state of mind because we think we're not compassionate, but there was a time when I said to myself, my, I, I can't say, I don't want to say, I say, always say my God, <laughs> the Buddhist nun. <laughs> Golly, <laughs> that's another one I learned in English. Oh dear. <laughs> you know, it's like, how much compassion does it take at some point to be mindful I realize mindfulness is one of the highest aspects of compassion as well. How can you bear watching such a boring, miserable mind day in, day out, without moving and making peace with it? I mean, if that is not compassion, I don't know what is. That's what I used to say to myself 40 years ago, you know. It struck me. You know, it's like mindfulness, like watch your mind, watch your nostrils, you know, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, you know. Right? You don't get the right breath, oh dear, you know, you don't get the right nostril. Oh. <laughs> you start getting really to war with yourself, don't you? And then you have to watch all this mind doing stupid things, you know, because it doesn't know yet how to handle this meditation, for example, you know. Right? So when you're mindful, you're observing life, not at its best, do you? It, sometimes it has its best, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you write one hour kind of telling, telling yourself, you know, that woman, if I meet her again, I'll slam the door in her face. That woman, and if you're a Buddhist, you say, actually, I shouldn't do that, really. Yes, I will do that. No, 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 I can't do that. So you have this kind of story going on in your chitta, in your mind, you know, sort of boring stories, and you know better than that. That's the thing that always struck me. I always felt there's something in me that I know better than that, but I can get out. I'm stuck in that rut, you know. You're stuck in the rut. Everything in yourself know I can do better, you know. In fact, you could do better by just coming here and just being in a Buddhist environment where you wake up a bit, you know. I'm not talking about my talk, but just wake up, you know. And so, you know, we, this is another form of the form of dukkha: is having to bear a mind that's so unsatisfactory. So ignorant, you know, it repeats again the same old thing, and it, you know, and again it proposes means and remedies and so on. Within two hours, you've forgotten all of it, you know. You get inspired about something, and the next day you don't want to do it. Most people come into the practice because they realize their mind is totally undisciplined. Un, unable to supervise itself. <laughs> That's when I realized I came to the monastery. I, it cannot supervise itself. I used to get so fed up having this wonderful, uh, inspirational thoughts, you know, that came very naturally. Yes, now I know what to do. And then the next day, how about it, you know, and just have, do the same old thing, habits. It's called habits, by the way. Repeat it. 
again and again. And you say, oh, people kill themselves. They go so depressed, you know. Some people just feel so imprisoned, you know, so caught up in that negative mind. They hate themselves or they hate life. Or, so it's about time we wake up to that, you know. Otherwise we feel, you know, life is not uh, particularly fun. People want to make it fun, but after a while we feel really tired to want to make life a fun experience all the time. That's why people take so much drugs and drink and so on, because they want to continue continue the happiness they know. You can't blame them. They don't maybe don't have any other means. You know. Maybe they need to maybe they just lack what we look at, what you're looking for. Something maybe you can find some of it here by doing the practice, you know. So compassion, I want to tell you, when you are practicing meditation, remember the Buddha didn't abandon mankind after he got enlightened. He could have said a goodbye, you know, be a Pacheka Buddha, a silent Buddha. They exist also in the history of Buddhism, right? But no, he decided to sort of, obviously at, at his stage, things just came through without any <laughs> problem, you know? So that was the first noble truth, the first sutta, the first teaching. So the, the cause of dukkha is that first is that attachment to sense pleasures, right? So the Buddha again find a way for us out of compassion for mankind to make us happy, to bring happiness into the human world in our life. He actually dedicated, I want to say it, eighty five years of his life teaching what he knew. He died at when he was early eighties. That's incredible compassion, you know, to not abandon mankind and to spend 45 years teaching what he had realized. So this teaching is not talking to you about, you know, living constantly with a sort of compassion, blah, blah, blah. If I, my friend were in a Mahayana, they have so many vows for compassionate action and they, they see they will get really stressed, they told me. It's too many. You have too many people to save, you know, and too many people to help. They get exhausted, and they get exhausted. They can't practice if <laughs> you get exhausted. So you have to be careful also. When you are compassionate, you have to do it with wisdom. How much you can do and how much you, you can offer to, to other people. So that's a balance, quite a fine balance in life, you know. So the second noble truth the Buddha um, shared with us is the fact that we are really engulfed with the desire for sense pleasure. Now, we don't have to judge ourselves. You know, we are brought up like that. We're born as a human being with five senses. He's not going to have miserable, miserable things. Why will he look for misery? So the eyes, nose, ears, you know, beautiful music, beautiful form, beautiful shape, beautiful food, beautiful smell, perfumes and all that, you know. We attach to the beautiful aspect of our five senses, six senses. Do you understand? Beautiful thinking, beautiful thoughts, yeah, ideals, and so on. So no more. Nothing wrong with that. The difficulty is when we these experiences are not dealt properly, and they actually make us very miserable. We don't know how to be content with life as it is. So the natural movement of the mind is that to get away from the suffering of that, you want more and more and more. Do you understand? That's the only way you know, by wanting more. And that is a desire that brings so much suffering, that causes suffering. You know, you feel suddenly, really, you've lost your weight, you look really thin and muscled and very kind of sport and very, you know, very good. And then suddenly you spend, you know, a whole week, you forget all about your diet and you get all flabby again. You lost your muscle because you lost interest in, you know, in doing gym every day. I mean, life is funny. Once you start looking at it, you start laughing, really, truly. It's humorous, you know. Unfortunately, I'm not a, I'm not a cartoonist, you know, because I would love to. I love cartoons. I mean, not every cartoons, but... And um, so the second aspect of the second noble truth is pushing, sort of becoming, wanting to become something you like, right? You're happy, you want to become more happy. The becoming is a natural. Life is a becoming process. You know, we're young, 
middle-aged, young teenagers, young middle-aged, and then old age, you know. So it's a movement. It's a, life is a movement. It's a journey. The energy doesn't stop unless you die. So this energy of becoming, you know, yes, we, if we attach to this, if we are, you know, if that's the only way we can be happy and peaceful, we need an object constantly to become something. Now you learn, you don't enjoy, I mean, you don't appreciate Buddhism unless you have the experience of the first noble truth. Do you understand? Which is a high level of understanding, the first noble truth. You know, when you say not getting what I want is dukkha, it's simple. But by golly, we forget it so often and start getting, getting sunk into our personal story and reasons and this and that and fear and so on, that we write a book before we let, get, let it go. Yeah? Instead of saying, this is, and I'm not getting what I want right now, and to say, what is it that I'm not getting that I want? You can just ask, start exploring the situation, you know? You become more of an explorer rather than somebody, a fearful, a fearful person that is terrified of not getting what they want in the future. You just learn from that experience. What is it? You know, you discover yourself. You discover what works, what doesn't work. And it's amazing when you can see actually you can be happy without wanting anything. Many people know that, you know, but they don't uh, maybe entrust those experiences with greatness. <laughs> they, say, they tend to think, oh, yes, yeah, so what kind of thing. Nibbana, my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, used to say, peace, you know, it's really um, an acquired taste. We all want peace, but when we have peace, we start running to get something, don't we? <laughs> We can't be stay, we can't stay with peace for very long. We immediately interpret it as there's something missing. <laughs> You've come to the place of really peace and you feel you don't want anything and so on. You know, you're really looking to become to go to Nibbana, you know, the end liberation and so on. Then you get one moment of being liberated, you know, with a big mind, and suddenly the mind saying, Oh gosh, I've forgotten to you know, close the tap and to do something with the fridge. The next thing you do, you're cooking your meal in the kitchen or adding something to your meal to make you happy. Anyway, you got distracted from that peace of mind. So Ajahn Sumedho used to say, basically, pay attention to those moments when the mind is not, you know, activated by a lot of energy, by a lot of wanting, not wanting. So, you know, we all want to be successful. That's normal. Why would you want not to be successful, you know? But that wanting, you can be successful, but wanting is not enough, do you understand? To be successful, you have to put a lot of steps to get to that place of success, do you understand? Many of us wish to be successful, but we don't put the, 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 the kind of layers, the steps that enables us to, to make progress in our endeavor. We just want immediate result, you know, often, don't we? And, um, you know, so the becoming is natural. You know, now you have to direct your mind into a becoming that's going to be helpful for you. And we are often reminded by other great teachers and ourselves, we want to be happy. But we don't know yet, you know, the path of happiness because it is counterintuitive quite often, you know. You think if you cling to something, it's going to be the right way. And when you let it go, you're really frightened to let something go. And then you suddenly experience incredible freedom and peace and happiness. Right? So we get very deluded or, let's say, confused by how we can interpret life. So the non-becoming, we all know that. In the morning, when we don't want to get up, you know, they know that feeling, oh, God, another day, I can't stand it. Another day, I have to look at somebody I don't like. Whether it's at work, in your family, or wherever, you know. Another day of fear, maybe. Another day of worry and anxiety. So it's not fun. I mean, there are. But that moment of, that moment where you feel really kind of a little bit down, 
what's beautiful in with the Buddhist teaching, you know, once you start meditating and looking inwardly, you have this incredible, you begin to know clearly that it's just a momentary, it's like a cloud over your chitta. It's like a cloud, a, a, a mist over your mind. And if you learn how to bear with this cloud, the more you know how to bear with these things, the quicker they go, because you don't add anything to it. You just look at it, that's all. And look at it means you, you see it. You're, you're mindful of what's, you know, mindful. But often we are mindful, but it's not so simple. We have a lot of agenda that we have with mindfulness, you know. If I'm, I'm going to be mindful, that means it's going to, it's going to go. That is already a desire included in your agenda of being mindful. Do you understand? I'll be mindful if I get what I want, in other words. <laughs> we go back to the first noble truth. We practice mindfulness heavily, you know, to get exactly what we want. We do that for many, many years, even as monks and nuns, you know. We put when we were young and not at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of bhava energy. Bhava, you want to become a good monk, a good nun, you know, we want to become a good meditator, you want to blah, 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 and so on. And then at some point that dies a bit, you know, and you can get so feeling, oh my God, there's nothing to do now. <laughs> it's like not becoming, it's like a lull, a sense of being like death, you know, <laughs> a mini death. So becoming, not becoming, not becoming is what my teacher at Sensei would say, it's like, People who are very depressed, you know, are in that state. They don't want to become life, you know. They don't want to have this. Uh, it's not that they don't want. I don't know what goes on in our mind. We don't know, maybe. But they come to the place where they don't want to live anymore. Some people don't want to live. There's nothing that makes them want to live. You know. So, and then the, the fourth, the third one is actually Niroda, the, the third noble truth. Is a story of the mind that is uh, the experience that has a scene that can begin to see that everything ends. Now, when you, you kind of attach to good things, who wants to end them? I mean, that would be ridiculous from a human side. From a human point of view, you'll be idiot, you know. I mean, you'll be calling a, a stupid person if you wanted a good thing to end. Unfortunately, whatever you think, they will end. So be prepared, you know, they will end. But they will not end in the way we think necessarily. So maybe you are with a partner and you feel, you know, you don't like them anymore or you don't like them as much, you know. And, uh, you know, there's something in you that wishes to end. But really after a while you begin to see it's not so much you wanted to get rid of your partner. It's more what you, you wanted to get rid of your perception of this person and your reaction to this person and your blindness to this person, you know. Do you understand? It's not necessarily the person outside you want to get rid of. You realize you are tired and sick of having the same old thought and perception of what you see and what you are in relationship with. Make sense? Yeah? So, um, yeah, so everything, and Niroda is also called cessation. You know, in the first part of the last century, the, the translation in Buddhism were really rather unsatisfactory. People did the best they could, you know, but equanimity was translated as indifference. <laughs> and the aim of Buddhism was cessation. No, not, not, you don't know what it is, cessation, but it was cessation. Yeah, but Buddhism was terribly misinterpreted, you know, so wrong translation. So, cessation means ultimate peace, more or less, you know, it's like, how can we describe ultimate peace, right? The peace that, I always think to say, I, I was not a Christian, but I like this sentence, the peace, the peace that passes, passes all, because um, I don't remember the, the, well, basically all thinking, you know, that, that beyond thinking, we can't really know what it is. Uh, intellectually, you know, it's a piece that is beyond our mind in a way. You know, we can't think of something beyond our thinking mind. It's like liberation. You can't think what it feels, what it's be to be a liberated being, you know. 
what does in the, the meditation takes you more and more to understand that your thoughts are just uh, an appendage to your mind. It's not your mind, do you understand? It's like a tool in your mind. It's like a sense. It's, it's considered one of the six senses. Like you, you hear, can hear sound. Your nose can smell odor, right? Your, contact, your body is a sense contact, right? Your taste bud, no taste. And the mind, no thought. But that's not what runs your world, you understand? Or what you may not be able to think that maybe one day you might not need to be obsessed and attached to your thoughts and having lots of paper in front of you to be able to say something coherent, you know. So this is the mind that we discover in our meditation, you know, the, the mind that lets things go easily, naturally, because you've trained it to know things as they are. You're not pushing things away. This is the way it is. What is abnormal is that we cling to things all the time. Now, clinging people again, yesterday I was doing the workshop, and we talk about attachment, you know. So clinging and attachment, you attach to this glass, you know, for a little while because you want to hold it and show it to you. But I don't have to hold it for two hours. My wisdom will tell me, time is over, you can put it down. <laughs> Maybe my wrist, well, my, my hand might feel tired after a while. Well, it's like our attachment, you know, sometimes we need to cling to things just because they need us, or they, you know, maybe we need to, you know, one of the things that our, the, the person was training us, you know, he said, don't, you can let go of everything except your robes and your arms ball. He was not talking about nuns going, you know, without clothes. Simply, you have only three robes, official robes, you know, so you need to really know where they are. You need to make sure that you're not attached emotionally, but it's a practical thing. Do you understand? Just like you, you grab the, 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 the arm of, of a little child if it's running towards and going to be run over by a bus or a car. But that's another domain of our life that we don't know makes a difference between attachment, love, right? This is very difficult for people because the mind is so caught up in having, if, it is a, if I love, it's mine, you see? And if it is not mine, then why truly I love them? That's the thing. You know, as long as love is kind of mixed up with uh, attachment, there's always a sense of me and mine in there. And we don't have any idea how to do this without clinging, often. That's why people divorce so quickly after a while because they fed up. And there's so much Buddhism nowadays. They can do retreat, they can do things, and they can, I don't have to have somebody who clings to me all the time. I'm fed up. I don't want to be somebody who is clinging to my partner all the time. I've had enough. So you see them going off somewhere else and <laughs> Buddhist monastery or meditation. <laughs> but you know, we don't want to have that kind of, um, you know, dependence. I think we want to be an independent person. That's why Buddhism is so uh, popular because Westerners love being independent, you know. They couldn't stand. I remember my generation couldn't stand any authority. You know, it was a, back to the end of the 60s, 70s, you know, early 80s. Don't give me any guru or anything like that, you know, can't stand it. Then you meet Buddhism, and you don't have to, you know, worship anybody or you know, don't have to believe anybody. What a freedom. It attracts people who really want to discover by themselves, you know, with their own life, like your life, the Buddha says, look, look at this mind. From this mind, you will find the way to happiness. Not by sorting out the world outside, getting all the, all the peace, you know, group, all the, uh, you know, the saving the planet group and the dolphins and the bugs and things like that, you know. Can't do that. I mean, we can. People are trying very hard, and I admire them, you know, people really working for the benefit of this planet. But at the same time, like somebody, a lovely teacher said once in his talks, you know, it's like we are very, very concerned about the planetary situation concerning oceans and water pollution and so on. He says we don't realize that our own water here is not talking about urine, the whole liquids in our body, from blood, 
to uh, all the liquid parts of our saliva, tears, all that, you know, is really polluted. It's polluted with greed, hatred, and delusion. Do you understand? Remember, when we are affected, you know, we feel things, we have, we cry, or we, you know, a little baby will maybe uh, pee in his pan, you know, a little, you know, when they, they're too excited or too, uh, you know. So the water element, you know, it's very um, kind of connected with how we feel, how we, uh, and then, this body, he was pointing, that we get we get very, very concerned about the pollution of the planet. We don't have any idea how pollute, how we pollute our mind without knowing, you know. Unknowing, you know, without really seriously considering how we live, how we respond to life, how we function in our life with people, with friends, with family, relatives, with all the family in here. One thing you learn about Buddhism is that it's really wonderful to see. If, of course, you look very solid to me, and uh, you know my friend, my sisters, my—they're all very solid. But you come at some point, you realize that all these people, you know, actually in here, you know, when I close my eyes, they're still here. <laughs> and if I have a little war with somebody, they're still here, and I'm still battling with somebody in there. And when I see them how they are, you know, I create all for my own perception. You understand? If my mind was still and nothing was rising, I just see them as empty, nothing special. But when I have a whole story about them, about this one and that one, then I create them constantly. So the greatest compassion I could finish with that is to stop creating each other. Right? Stop creating each other. Let people be free. Let people find out for themselves how they want to create their world. Don't be so dependent on each other, you know, to fulfill our life. It's really important to take hold of this power we have that we can make a difference in this life for the world, for ourselves and other people. So that's compassion, isn't it? So you see, discipline, mindfulness, and compassion is all wrapped. It's kind of a little a package all together. And this um, sense that some traditions seem to be more compassionate than others is just because the Buddha doesn't make a, a big deal about compassion. It's a foundation of the practice. The five precepts, the eight precepts, it's all about non-harming, non-stealing, no, no mis mis sexual misconduct not lying and not taking drugs and intoxicant that makes your mind dull and stupid, you know, right? It's all about deep compassion for human beings. You become a harmless person, a trustworthy person, somebody who is not selfish and using his sexual uh, energy for the sort of egocentric satisfaction. You become somebody who doesn't lie or at least is conscious when they are lying aware and can learn from that and next time do better. And you don't stop taking drugs, you know, because you realize this, these drugs, whether it's alcohol or other things, you know, they actually affect your mind and body very, very much, you know. I never used to drink much, you know, at all. But I began to see more clearly how, how uh, kind of, um, you know, the alcohol, even a little, when I was become more aware, I was becoming more aware how my body was affected by things, you know. My mind was not going up there, it was going down this way. <laughs> you know, different chakras being, you know, exacerbated with alcohol and drugs. Right? So, um, think about the five precepts, you know, for how much compassion, you're all based in total compassion for life and the world. And then we have this beautiful four Brahma Viharas, you know, which are called the divine abidings, four divine abidings, the divine of the gods. You know, there are gods in Buddhism, and uh, but they are not the path. The path is about liberation. The gods are on the way. <laughs> it's like a thing you see on your way, you know. When the Buddha talks about previous life, future life, and so on, you know, but this tradition, we don't dwell. What am I going to, going to spend a whole life? What am I going to do next life, you know? The Queen of Sabbath or Hillary Clinton? 
you know. That's kind of saying. We just always brought back in the teaching to the here and now, right? And the four Brahma Viharas, I, I talked a little bit, there's a metta, compassion, karuna, um, loving, sorry, loving kindness is transition for metta, karuna is compassion, mudita is sympathetic joy or gladness, and um, uh, gosh, upeka is uh, equanimity or serenity. Yeah. So, and these are meditations in themselves. We have some chant, you know, may I abide in well-being and freedom from affliction and so on, you know. We chant those things regularly. It's a form of, you don't pray to anybody, but it's a form of filling the heart with these good wishes, kind, loving, caring wishes for other people. Because remember, thought is energy. Be careful. Because when you're thinking, you can really stress the brain. Be careful. So it's good to bring some peaceful thoughts in the mind sometimes, yeah? Rather than exacerbate it with a lot of thinking about what's what, 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 how. There's one question that is most useful on the path of awakening, which is used in other tradition. It's, a, it's called a watu in, uh, I think it's either Chinese or it's uh, Korean. And it's a question, who? Who am I? It's used as a kind of object of meditation. And so, so many people find it incredibly helpful just to say when you are saying, uh, like, oh my God, I'm going, to, I'm going to lose my job. Isn't it terrible? My family is going to be go down the drain, you know. Who is thinking right now? It's like you, you prick the little bubble of, you know, the, the bubble, the, the balloon of your thinking. And suddenly, right, there's nobody thinking, it's just thoughts. Do you want to be prisoners of those thoughts or not? That's how it works. Do I want to be a prisoner of those thoughts or do you want to have, let them go and bring thoughts maybe that are more constructive? So how to deal with life when it's difficult? That's basically the, the question. So this, ask yourself, who is sitting right now? Does that empty your mind a bit? Who is sitting? Ask yourself. You don't hear anybody, do you? You don't hear Frank, Michelle, or Sylvie, or Peter, or... No. Can you see your mind empty when you say that? Who is sitting? Who is thinking? You can use this in your daily life. It's a very helpful, compassionate object of meditation. Right? So you can see, compassion is not just a feeling. Love is not just a feeling. It's the way you approach life, the way you approach with respect, with serenity, with kindness, with, you know, there's a whole, it's, a, it's something that comes together with a package of respecting other people, being kind to other people. If you're kind but you don't respect them, it's not much, you know, what do you do? You know? It's also taking care of yourself, taking care of others properly, you know, not asking them to be always what you want. That will lead to a very quick separation, I think. Be careful not to imprison other people with your desires. That's not compassionate. Even though you may feel very right about it, extremely righteous even, but never mind being righteous, you say, I am right. You're just angry. You know, a lot of control comes from our own anger. <laughs> I used to say, you know, you know, I go, yeah, I know, do this, you know, go like really excited about something and irritated and something, you know. And you talk as if you were right. The other is wrong. You're not angry, it's just the other is wrong. And you're right. That's a wonderful way of looking at it, isn't it? It kind of comes down, it comes, you get a sense of humor. If you take yourself too seriously, you stay, we get really miffed and hurt and not taken seriously, personally. You know. 
But it's not easy. Don't worry. When I say these things, it's for my own. I wouldn't talk about my experience if I hadn't finished with it. Not that I finished with everything. But there's certain things you know. You know, I have enough knowledge about it to know that it's quite okay to talk about these things because it helped me to go through that and go beyond it a bit to a certain extent. You know, I'm not saying finished, but and to know that it works. That's the thing. It works, you know. And that's what I want, in a way, for you to be confident, you know, because the world is really uninterested in waking you up. It's uninterested. In fact, I used to say, buy lots of things, want lots of things. That's exactly what the multimillionaire of this planet wants you to do. Just ruin yourself. Buy more, get more, want more. If you did not want all these things, probably the market will go down to zero. The planet will fall apart. That's why they need your greed and they need your anger. Because when you're angry, then you want to get what you want. I remember every time I got angry, I was like my cat, you know. As soon as she became angry in a monastery, you know, she would just run straight away to her dish and start eating quickly like that. She said, God, that reminds me. Not now, I mean, kind of cooled down. <laughs> it's like, I mean, as a, as a young nun, you know, as soon as I didn't get what I wanted, I would go and get a little piece of chocolate I had in a corner of my, or my room, or have a cup of tea with lots of honey to sweeten the heart, you know. So you see, anger, sense pleasure, anger, you know, nasty, nasty object, and then you want a pleasant one, you know. It's always going like this, like a yo-yo. And then the compassion comes, you know, when you say, thank you for having such a wonderful path that takes me beyond this funny world. <laughs> okay, so now we've a bit late now, it's ten past. So we're supposed to have tea now, yeah, biscuits and tea for you. And uh, 15 minutes, we can have, shall we say we have until, I would say 10 minutes is enough, isn't it? 10 minutes, you think, Yeah. And uh, you can chat, you can talk, but please come back by uh, one, two, by 25 past. It's really three, it's 15 minutes, but I know by the time you sit and you go to the loo and you get your cup of tea, it will be five minutes probably. Okay, and then you can come back and we have a period of question and answer. <laughs> 